Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Welcome to the Financial Foresight Podcast. Today, it's myself, Isaiah Douglas, Ian Bloom, Colin Overweg. Dwight is out. So we are going to jump right into today's first topic, which is coming from Ian. And it's talking about resulting and personal finance. So this is based off an article that was actually posted in January by Ryan Freilich, who's another XY member. Um, But obviously, I'm a huge Kitsis fan, and I read his weekend reading for financial planners, and it was highlighted in there. But I really enjoyed the topic. Um, So the topic is how resulting impacts your personal finances. And resulting means having this like results-based mentality about your decisions. So a perfect example that he uses in here is... He he is drinking out at a bar with friends and one of his friends decides to drive home even though he's a little intoxicated and Ryan in this example orders an Uber. Now in this example what happens is the Uber gets sideswiped and he has to go to physical therapy for a couple months to deal with his injury and his friend gets home safely even though he parks a little crooked. Now the question is does that make getting in the Uber the bad decision from the outset. And he proposes that the answer is no. Him not driving drunk or intoxicated is still the exact right thing to do, right? But he just happened to get punished in that instance because of something terrible that happened. But he couldn't have predicted that. Whereas you can predict that if you drive intoxicated, there's a percentage chance that you get in a horrible car accident as a result of it, right? And so this this whole idea as applied to finance is making decisions, knowing what the odds are to the best of your ability is still the right thing to do, even though sometimes those decisions don't work out. Um, I thought this topic was interesting because I'm a huge gamer and we talk about percent chances a lot in gaming, right? There's a lot of variance. So when you're talking about either playing poker or trading card games or any kinds of games, there's always a percent chance things work out well for you when you make a play and and a percent chance that your opponent has something to do about it, right? To counter you. And so results-based thinking is always something that people fall into a trap of like, oh man, if I had just known I would have drawn that card and it's like, but you couldn't have known that, right? There's no way for you to know that. So you have to play to the best of your ability with the information you have available. Yeah, I think this is extremely applicable in just life in general. Yes, financial planning, but uh, to your point, gaming. Um, and a lot of this post was uh, uh, really uh, relied on for uh, Annie Duke's book, uh, titled Thinking in Bets, and she actually was a national champion in poker um, and just was a, is a really great author and talks about uh, our biases versus you know the, how the resulted 
how the results were from our decisions. But then going back and trying to really understand, well, was that actually the best decision? Um, I, I think it's so interesting. I mean, you can say this for so many different things. Like, you know, if you have a aunt and or uncle that smokes a pack of cigarettes per day, but they live to be 95, and then you have your uh, other aunt and uncle that, uh, or a person that you know that eats healthy and, uh, you know, does a great diet, exercises all the time, and dies of a heart attack. You go, oh, well, obviously smoking has nothing to do with it, even though we all the science and research points that it's terrible for your health. Uh, that's that's completely what we're trying to accomplish with our clients is really making sure that we can work with them and say, okay, what is the best opportunity for you to get from point A to point B? And if I can either help you increase your, pro- your odds of success or even uh, help you feel more confident in your decisions, that's really what our job is to do. Uh, and sometimes those decisions don't always work out, to your point, Ian, uh, but really we need to make sure that we're thinking about how we're making decisions more importantly than the results, which is a really difficult thing to do because we live in a results-oriented world. You have to make sure you go with this saying, and I'm not the first one that said this and it won't be the last, but it's like the process over the results. Like That's what's important is if you have a process that has a lot of intuition that makes sense it's based on you know academic evidence and research or whatever it is whether it's medicine whether it's investing whether it's anything and you're doing the right things and the result comes out negative you you can't beat yourself up about it because you're trying to do what's best given the information that's known Um, we've all probably been somewhere and had someone say oh i bought this penny stock and i made a you know ton of money like congratulations. Like how many did you buy where you lost all your money? Right. <laughs> yeah. Tell, right. Tell That's me about, the one in a million odds, right? T- tell me about that. Or, Oh, you know, I got into cannabis, you know, before everyone else did, or Hey, I bought Tesla when it was $35. I remember reading about Tesla when it was $35. I could say, Oh, I should, you know, I, I should have bought it. And if I would have bought it, that would have changed my life. No, like at the time it was a company that didn't make any money and it's competing in an industry with a, a lot of other players that, are well-established that have their costs under control and can deliver the vehicles on time. Now, today, you could have made money in Tesla. We could go all the way through, but does that mean it was the right decision? No, probably not, because at the time, you know, if you pick an individual stock and say that you're gonna make a significant investment to make a ton of money, it's probably not a very prudent decision. Right, for all the companies that have a lot of hype and do really well in the long run, there's at least as many companies, if not twice as many, that have a lot of hype and don't end up being worth very much in the long run, right? So you can't always just assume that because you have some information, you're going to win. You just have to make the best decisions given the odds, which is where you know, topics we harp on all the time, like diversification come in, right? What's the best way to increase your odds of success? Well, taking more bets for the same amount of money, because some of them are bound to work out, right? So it's it's that kind of thing. I really like this topic, because I think that any action you take in life, to Colin's point, you can go back and say, if I repeated that action 100 times, what would my results be? Like, would I get 56 out of 100, right? Oh, well, then that's actually, you know, that's actually a positive action, right? Would I get 80% the result I wanted out of 100? Oh, my God, that's insane. That's a great bet. 
You should take that every time. So, you know, just because things in life don't always work out doesn't mean that you're not making the right decisions. It's about controlling the odds that your decision comes out the way you want it to be. Yeah, I, I love the one Isaiah with the buying a penny stock. Um, I feel like the, the new <laughs> penny stock now is like Bitcoin, you know, with people that are like, oh, I bought that. Like, and, you know, I'm so smart and, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did this and all that. Um, it's got to be about the process. Um, you know, even when you make a, a correct decision, at least the result ended up being favorable. It's, you, you know, if you want to be a really great decision maker moving forward, sometimes you even have to look back at those decisions and say, wow, that wouldn't have made it through my process. I should not have done that. Did it end up in my favor? Yes, but you can't just leave it there and say, yep, that was a good decision. Um, and that's, that's ultimately, like I said originally, what we're trying to do for our clients day in and day out. And I think that's where... And not to just keep harping on investing, but that seems to be kind of where I'll, I'll take the conversation from Harp my on it, point. Man. Um, if you think about like rules-based or quantitative strategies that remove emotion, humans are terrible uh, investors. We're not wired to be really, really wise and sound with our money. And by having some of these rules, we'll protect you for saying like, oh, this doesn't fit with what my rules or decision you know, protocol is. So Colin, to your point with Bitcoin, like, yeah, that... You know, I'll throw some money at it. Well, why? Like, how does that fit in what you told me um, or, or what you built out, you know, two or three years ago? And yeah, you should go through and, and make sure that the rules or the framework that you have makes sense. But don't just change it to make a decision that would make it a bad decision. Like, don't don't go out there and say, well, I'm going to change my structure for why I do certain things or the probabilities because I really want this. Um, you need to have something that's kind of grounded, set rules, have heck have someone that holds you accountable to it as well. And I think that is a, is a big piece of this too. So, and what's for sure, what's really interesting too, is even looking at the decisions, maybe not uh, of, of buying into the market or diversifying, but even when not to do something. So, you know, you'll have clients all the time when the market starts getting a little bit jumpy, especially like in December of 2018, when the market was down uh, almost 18% over just the last six weeks uh, of the year and I remember having a couple of clients and even just friends and family saying you know is this the next big burst should we get out should we get out and it's just really simple to say you know just look back at the past and say uh, well if you would have gotten out of the market right before the collapse of 2008-2009 uh, when would you have gotten back in and, and all these different ways you know and, and then if you uh, just hung on look what would have happened you know for all of market history you know, when the market comes roaring back eventually or just ticks back slowly over the years, it's almost impossible to time this stuff. So when are you going to be able to look at that and say, all right, because of my procedure, because of my process, this is when I want to sell and this is when I want to buy. Um, if you're just doing it off of behavior, that is in uh, and, and your short term emotions. That's another area where just a, a sound advisor and who's not resulting is going to be able to make sure to, to help you better your chances of success and make sure that you're able to uh, stick to your goals, stick to the process. I mean, so uh, tying this all up and maybe wrapping it in a nice bow here, one of the simulations that we use a ton in retirement planning is called Monte Carlo simulation. And for those on the podcast who are not familiar with it, it's the idea of running a thousand unique trials of 
potential outcomes for a client and seeing how many times they're successful, right? So you can apply this to retirement planning, education planning, anything, but it's usually used in retirement planning because we're playing with a lot of time, right? And you want to see, obviously, whether you've run out of money or not. So the idea behind it is if you can just take as many optimizations as you can, these positive decisions, you might be able to get up to an 80, 90, maybe even 99% chance of certainty. But just know that nothing in life is certain, right? We can't get you to the point in anything where we're making the perfect decision. You can just make the best decision and put the odds, quote unquote, ever in your favor to borrow from the Hunger Games. Um, so the more odds you can get in your favor, the better your situation will hopefully be in the future. Well said. Yeah, so maybe um, if you guys are good with it, we'll go ahead and switch over to Tweet of the Week. Let's do it. So I was on Twitter today, and random.org chose me, so we'll go for it. And Kelly Roberge, who's pretty famous within the advisor community, but basically she works with Eric Roberge at Beyond Your Hammock. She posted, after 12 years, 126,000 miles and many seasons of street parking in Boston, it's time to buy a new car. If I know exactly what make and model I want, have the cash to buy new, but also willing to buy used and want 0% interest on a loan, what should I do? What's the best car haggling advice? And Matt Becker, who's another CFP and planner, posted an article from Mom and Dad Money, which is his blog, um, back in 2013, where he posted an article called Buying a Car, How to Negotiate with Dealers. And I kind of just wanted to go through this because I feel like this is very practical advice for us to communicate to some people. Um, I think some of the smaller money decisions or quote unquote smaller, like buying a car, don't really get a whole lot of press, right? Um, But his, his basic philosophy is that first you need to nail down the car you want. Second, you need to nail down the price you want to buy and whether you're buying it cash or interest. And then third, and this is my this is what this whole article is about and the most interesting point is his process for buying a car is actually never to go to a car dealership. He emails a list of dealers that he knows have the make and model and asks them for their best quote. <laughs> and then if they won't give them a quote, they're off the list. And he just builds a spreadsheet with all the potential um, out-the-door prices, right? So prices including taxes, fees, all that kind of stuff. And then he makes a decision on the car he wants to buy there. And by the time he's walking into the dealer, he's already got the price. He's already figured out what the financing is going to be if there's financing. And he's walking in to buy it, not to test drive it, not to be sold anything, And I thought it was a really interesting process, right? Because it's very counter to what the dealers want from us because they know if we're on the lot, we're way more likely to buy. And it's also, I think, a very effective way to be able to shop the market. What do you guys think about that? How do you know you want a car if you've never test driven it? That's my pushback. Like you might think it has all the features you want. You get in and you're like, oh, it actually doesn't fit very well or I don't like this or I don't like that. So for me right there, I'm kind of like, I don't know. I think... So here's what I was saying, though. I think step one of his process is figuring out the car you want separately from the purchase decision. So like a month in advance, going to a couple dealers and driving various vehicles and then leaving. And then a month later, emailing all these people and saying, look, I've settled on the Toyota Sienna is the example he uses versus the Honda Odyssey. I'd like to buy one of those two cars. Give me your best offers on those cars if you have them. 
I think I think my favorite part about it is kind of going back to the resulting thing. It's that you're you're really taking the time to make a decision, uh, trying to keep your emotions out of it because you get to the dealership and if you're like, all right, I'm gonna find a car and buy one. There's a lot of things that could be happening. Maybe all of a sudden the uh, salesman says, well, if you do that, we're gonna throw in, you know, a free this or that, and maybe that pushes you over the emotional hump of, okay, I want to buy this. That sounds like a great deal. And you really didn't take the time and effort to figure out exactly what you wanted to do. So I feel like just that process could be applicable to a lot of different things where you're taking the buying decision uh, separate from the uh, picking or the choosing or the sorting decision. So yeah, go out, test drive a few cars, get it down to the your favorite uh, one or two makes and models and years and then once you have that now you can shop around of who's got you know what on the lot maybe you can find one that has a really small little ding in it or has a few extra miles and that disproportionately offsets the price and now you're able to find a good deal um, I, I think the process is great it, it, it'd be funny just going from our first topic to see, you know, if you walk onto the lot and you get a great car and it just happens to work out for you, you drive the car for 10 years and you love it. Well, that was one result, but how many people have walked onto a car dealership for every person that's happy for 10 years uh, and was really upset? They didn't realize that they overpaid uh, or maybe they didn't, you know, like uh, whatever little feature that they didn't know about later. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was an interesting process, like I said, because I had never really come up with a systematized process for buying a car. Like, I know as a financial planner what I'm looking for in a good car offer, right? Like, if you're going to do financing, a low interest rate, um, I'm looking for them to accept a trade-in if I have one. I'm looking for a good offer on that trade-in, and I'm looking for the lowest potential purchase price. And I know I can pull up an app like True Car and see what the range of potential prices are for a car. But I had never really thought about taking the human element almost entirely out of the equation by doing most of the correspondence via email so that you can actually just spreadsheet the whole thing and do that. I thought it was a really cool system um, because you know, like I'm such a behaviorist and, and I know that I make way better decisions if I'm sitting in my office at home staring at my computer screen than if I'm, you know, walking into the sales environment. So. Yeah. The other thing to think about is typically uh, quotas into the month, into the quarter. So you might be able to strategically think about starting at the beginning of that month and get some people knowing that you're looking and see if how much they'll work with you that way. Uh, that's a good idea. Uh, yeah. I almost think a phone call over an email because people like are just going to be tire kickers through emails. And if you call, maybe you're a little bit more serious and just ask and then just be like, I'm really interested. I'll buy, but I need to know what it is. And I'm going to call three or four other places. And if they're serious, they'll play ball and they'll know that you're more serious picking up the phone because in today's day and age, it's so easy to email. And I think you might just get some people that will ignore it. So that that's a fair point. I also would, you know, wonder whether one is more effective for some people than the other. Like, for instance, if you're particularly introverted, the email side of things might work better because it might take out some of the social pressure. I know that 
for instance, you know, not to knock on my wife too hard, but she's, she's a huge introvert. And so going into sales environments means that she feels pressured to give people what they want right away. And if the person that she's trying to acquiesce to is the salesperson, giving them what they want means her buying the thing, right? So I, I don't, I would guess it depends on personality type. I'm pretty extroverted and I'm pretty comfortable in that sort of environment. So I never feel that sort of pressure to the same degree, but I know some people do. So that might, it might depend, like the phone call might still have that kind of sales pressure for some people. Yeah. I feel like I would just, I, I'm pretty emotional that way. Um, or at least when I just get fired up, I can get gun ho on an idea and it's like, all right. I yeah. just want the car. Yeah, I, well, I, I'd probably walk out with like the fully loaded car and like, yeah, but dude, look at like the, the moon roof or throw some bigger tires on there, you know, whatever the case is. So I feel like if they got Put a me like all revved on my up and, yeah, we, you know, I'd get ranting with the sales guy about some make and model and He'd be like, oh, yeah, we got to get you hooked up with these. I'll give it to you, you know, 10% off just for you, bud. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I, for me, I just need to uh, make that decision separate from uh, from emotions to so that I don't get too uh, uh, excited about something. Yeah, I think that's where the separation from the dealer comes into play. I think uh, fi- the final thing that I would say on this is, the buying the car is the transaction it's not a relationship and i know i've struggled with sometimes if you're going to have something that's like ongoing or there's like the value proposition from someone is different you're not always going to be saying you know what's the lowest price here right like i think for example there's financial advisors all over the map as far as what they charge more does not necessarily mean better but you could find someone that could really take care and solve an issue that you might be paying them more the value of that advice is worth a lot more. And yes, that is absolutely like self um, fulfilling as far as like what we do in encouraging people to not make yeah, that decision. Yeah, you might on be price. a little biased, right? Yeah, so it's <laughs> it's super biased, but there's other there's other areas where I think it can make sense as well. But yeah, if it's just a transaction, just like a mortgage, like are you going to say oh, well, this rate's higher, but I like them. Like you're not talking to that mortgage person every month when you pay. <laughs> so you're going to have certain things in your life where it's a transaction and you want the lowest cost. There's going to be other times where it's more on the what value that you get for it. Yeah, like a fee-for-service model is is very different than a fee-for-transaction model, right? Like you want you want the person that you're getting an ongoing service from to be somebody you trust and relate to. Whereas, like you were saying, if you're just going to buy a car and probably never see the salesperson again, whether you like that salesperson or not, it's kind of irrelevant. So true. No offense to the salespeople. I mean, <laughs> they they provide a necessary part for the dealers, but they're, they're not really going to be there when your car breaks down. So true. All right. Well, uh, I think that's probably a good spot to wrap up for today. Does anyone have any closing thoughts? Make sure that you are not judging your decisions based on the results. As crazy as that sounds, uh, do your best to try to think about what would be the highest probability uh, of success, highest probable outcome for you to achieve and continue to stick to those rules, those guidelines. And then over many, many decisions, you're going to end up way better off. All right. And uh, when buying a car, make sure to system up systematize the process because you'll probably come up with one of those better outcomes by following the process as opposed to uh, just walking into a dealer that has the car you want and walking out with a car.
right? So anyway, hope you guys have a great week. Thanks so much for listening. We hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.